1: Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
0: The following podcast is a production of the Factual Data Creation Facility. Welcome, one and all, to another edition of Straight from the Desk. There are but three things to discuss today, so let's get to them. First up, the United Kingdom will start transferring asylum seekers to the country of Rwanda. It's a brilliant plan. The United Kingdom cut a deal with the African country of Rwanda to transfer the boatloads of people seeking asylum to the UK to that country. These intending immigrants usually board their boats UK-bound in France. If these supposed asylum seekers are truly in danger in their countries of origin, they should welcome staying in any country that will take them. Well, this isn't the case because I know and you know that the overwhelming majority of these people are economic refugees. They're in no danger in their home countries. They just want to get the free handouts from the UK, bring their extended families to the UK with them, and then travel back and forth to the country they seek refuge from for the rest of their lives. How do I know this? I know this because that's exactly what the majority of so-called refugees do here in this country once they get here. And how do I know that? Well, I work for the federal government. We'll just leave it at that until January 1st, 2023. I guess the benefits are better in the UK than they are in France. I wish the United States had the fortitude to make a deal such as the one the UK has made. If they did, overnight, the amount of the hordes at the border seeking refuge, quote-unquote, in this country would fall to almost none. Back in the 1980s, I worked with refugees from Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos. Those poor people wouldn't go back to their countries of origin even if you paid them $1 million to do so. They would be going back to certain persecution and probably death. While here, they learned English in record time, got jobs, and moved on. Now, can you say that for the bulk of recent refugees in this country? No. Next, David Zaslov, CEO of the new Warner Discovery Media Company and also the new boss of Cable News Network, better known as CNN, has stated in a recent interview with Oprah Winfrey that he would like CNN to focus on the facts about that and set itself apart from a cable news industry that's monopolized by advocacy networks. CNN was the first 24-hour news channel, and it was groundbreaking when it came out. Its reporters could be found in the field accompanying U.S. air quotes advisors to El Salvador's army and in the halls of Congress. If there was breaking news to be found, it was CNN which usually would have broken it. Those days are long gone with the current network operating with others as if they're the official propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. If Mr. Zaslov is serious, he would start by getting rid of the talking heads, the sorry excuses masquerading as news anchors on CNN. You know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Don Lemon, what's in her name, and that man boy, Brian Stelter. The others should be left to get with the program or get left without a job. Then I take a close look at the producers and writers behind those news readers. I know it will take time, and I hope the new boss at CNN can bring it back to what it used to be. if nobody remembers what it used to be, it was a well-respected news broadcaster. And finally, if you weren't able to tell from my accent, I'm a product of New York. I was born in Manhattan, but basically spent my youth in the Bronx. Sure. The big city has seen changes, both good and bad. I'm sure you've heard of the rapidly disappearing story of the recent subway shooting and how bad it's getting in New York. Like everything else, it comes and goes in cycles. That being said, I'd like to share what it was like in New York in my youth, specifically the Isle of Manhattan. A little background. My father's family immigrated from Hamburg, Germany in the late 1800s. They were not amongst the majority of Lutherans in the home country. They were Catholics. I don't know if that's what drove them to come to this country. All I know is that my great-grandfather, Herman, arrived via ship in the year 1883. He married and settled into what was then a working-class neighborhood located on 471 Columbus Avenue and West 83rd Street, just a block away from Central Park. These days, trust me, you couldn't afford to live there his children, which included my grandmother and great-aunts and uncles, there were six of them, four boys and two girls, lived and died at that address. One uncle had been run over by a bus and died before I was born. One of the first memories I have of that apartment building was my Uncle Pete, an alcoholic who resembled Mo of the Three Stooges, throwing a drunken rant in the dimly lit hallway outside my Aunt Rita's apartment, located one floor down from where they all lived as children. Old Uncle Pete died shortly after that event. The apartments themselves still featured gas fixtures, which predated the external electrical wiring which ran up and down the walls. A boarded-up fireplace was located in the living rooms of these apartments. That source of heat now replaced by hissing heat radiators, at that time anyway. This was circa the mid-1960s, and the apartments weren't updated until the 1980s. Another memory I have is the use of what is called, or what was called, a dumbwaiter. What a dumbwaiter was, was a small pulley-operated shelf that you would lower from a cutout located in the hallway of your apartment. You would get deliveries of food, medicine, and groceries this way. No doubt ordered utilizing the landline telephone, which had just become affordable to the lower classes. The delivery person would access this contraption on the ground floor service area. I witnessed the operation of a dumbwaiter exactly one time before it went the way of the gaslight fixtures I mentioned before. The neighborhood was in decline, and by the early 1970s, it was considered a slum. If you would take a gander out of the living room window in those days, as I did, you would be greeted by the garish neon lights of the greasy spoon called Joe's Restaurant, located across the street. It survived well into the 1980s. Late at night, the pimps, dressed in their outlandish 70s outfits, would catch a meal there, taking a break from cruising up and down Columbus Avenue in their equally outlandish cars, and of course, beating the woman they were supposed to protect. The streets were patrolled by transvestites, panhandlers, and every sort of criminal you could imagine, Intermingled with these types were the heroin junkies. What wasn't patrolling the streets at that time were the police. The streets themselves were littered by garbage and dog feces, and in the summer, the combined disgusting aroma of this combination would waft its way up to the fourth-floor apartment where my grandmother resided. Penn Station was just one big crime scene. My cousin Joe would joke that there was a cop stationed every six feet in Penn Station and a robber stationed every three feet. You do the math. Well, I joined the military in the late 1970s and didn't make it back to Columbus Avenue until the early 1980s. Gone were their pimps, criminals, and junkies, though the panhandlers were still hanging in there, along with Joe's restaurant. The then-brand-new 82nd Police Precinct was now a present a block down, which probably had to do with the demise of the formerly described. The streets were clean, and the yuppies had arrived. Now, the last time I was there, probably in the mid-2000s, Joe's restaurant was long gone, and the whole area was dominated by upscale shops and restaurants— with the pimp cars replaced by limos dropping off their wealthy passengers to and fro. My grandmother, the last member of the family who lived there, had paid $400 a month for rent while in residence. That wouldn't even cover a week's worth of groceries these days. Remember, time moves in circles, or so my Asian acquaintances tell me. So, if you have any occasion to be around 471 Columbus Avenue, stop by zangoni's store and ask if anyone remembers the Minx family. I think the great-granddaughter of the original Zingoni still runs the place and lives in my grandmother's old apartment. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, take care. Next week, I'll be back with a regular OFNT episode.